Hello, I'm Martin Mercer. And I'm James Mastriani. You've never heard of us. We're two Brits who grew up in North London and have had varying success in the film and television industry. In our ever-advancing age, we find ourselves on... The The Wrong wrong Side side of of Hollywood. In our series of podcasts, we'll share our experiences of what it's like being a British bloke living and working... Or not. ...in the biz. We'll discuss everything from fish and chips to things that wind us up. So stay with us. It's all uphill from here. This podcast may contain strong language. If you're of a sensitive nature or easily offended, we invite you to, as they say in Blighty, jog on. Hello, mate. Good afternoon. Right. Well, we best get on with the Guy Masterson expose. So how do you keep people in suspense for a week? Um, I don't know, James. How do you? I'll tell you later. <laughs> right, get on with it, you donut. Righto. Part two coming up. The real Burton was a very private, charming, funny, reflective, often melancholic human being. Mm. He was a beautiful man. So when this play popped up about him, I went to see it. It was basically a stand-up comedy routine about Richard Burton. And the guy doing it, Josh Richards, and this is an extraordinary coincidence, he had been my flatmate at Cardiff University for two terms. What? Um, Amazing. It's it's mental. (laughs) It's absolutely mental. He had been my flatmate, and he was studying at the Royal Welsh College. It wasn't the Royal Welsh at the time, it was the Welsh College. And I was studying biochemistry. And for two terms, we lived together. I thought he was crazy, and he probably still is crazy, (laughs) but he was a brilliant actor, and then I never saw him again. Wow. We parted company after two terms, until ten years later, I come back from Hollywood. I'm walking through Camden. I see a half-torn-off poster. Oh, I should tell you that Josh, Josh Richards, he's on Emmerdale now, and uh, he did this incredible impersonation of Uncle Richard whilst I was at university. He would take a Belisha beacon, which is the orange thing on the top of a pedestrian crossing. Right. And in those days, it was much bigger. You could stick your whole head in it like a robot. Right. And he'd stick his whole head in there and, and he would go, no one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. Now, this is what it sounds like with a bucket on your head. <laughs> Guy is putting a bucket on his head. Nobody would have believed in the last years of the 19th century <laughs> that human affairs are being watched from the timeless worlds of space. <laughs> and people loved it. And for those two terms, I did not tell him that he was my uncle. Right. I did not tell him. He had no clue. Hilarious. So there I was going through Camden and I see this half torn off poster for Ing. <laughs> i.e. playing Burton I thought I can't believe that Josh is still playing Burton after all these years and I got in touch with his agent and we met in Cardiff and I said what is this thing you're doing about Burton I've got something to tell you and I confessed to him being my uncle right. and he went ballistic <laughs> what we lived together for two terms and you didn't tell me you arsehole <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, then I told him that just before we lived together, I'd been off to Switzerland with him. His brain almost melted. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I said to him, if you're doing this thing about Uncle Richard, I would like to introduce the possibility of putting a fully well-rounded picture of Uncle Richard on stage, not just the stand-up routine. And he agreed, and the playwright agreed, and I got involved, and I directed this thing, and it was a big hit. Mm. And Josh's career took off. He got into the RSC. Amazing. And he's now on Emmerdale. And that was the playing Burton that did that. Right. Amazing. And that was my first directorial job. And I remember doing a videotape of him in the garage with a blank Mm. backdrop for part Mm. of a showreel. Yes, and we had to put gaffer tape behind his ears because the light shone through behind his ears. That's right. (laughs) 
we had a backlight just to highlight. So he was in silhouette. Oh, I love it. And his, and his ears glowed. Yes. Gosh, we need to put some gaffer tape. <laughs> he, did, he did brilliantly. He did absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. It's interesting. Again, not from the money your management comes from helping people. Here, you see your college buddy. Yeah. It wasn't about, ooh, there's an opportunity to cash in here. It was like, no, I can tell the truth here through this guy's great performance. Mm. Now, has there been times that you felt, especially from the producing side of things, let down, opportunities? Because I look at you and I go, dude, certainly before Shark is broken, I was like, what the fuck? You know, where is Guy? You're doing all this amazing mm. stuff. Something's going on. And then, of course, I heard things, but I'd rather... <laughs> you mean the dark side? The dark side. The other side of Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> the wrong side. Yeah. <laughs> the trench. With success, there is always people who want to come on board and perhaps draw from you, draw your energy or exploit your success. And um, I've had my fair share of things. I mean, I turned down a couple of shows which went on to be incredibly big. Jesus Hop the Air Train, Jerry Spring of the Opera. I was asked to be involved with. Um, but... Yeah, some dark times. I don't really necessarily want to mention names, but, sure. you know, projects that I'd put together that, let's just say, I lost control of and other people went on to make a lot of money from. Right, yeah. right. You lost control and they took advantage. Yeah, they didn't take advantage because I lost control. No. I lost control as they yeah. took advantage. You know, I was naive and I always believed in the goodness of people and suddenly you find yourself going, oh, how the hell did that happen? Wow. Um, I walked away from £1.2 million once. Life could have been very different had I stayed on that project and had I been advised properly by my agent, but my agent had been murdered. What? Literally. Yeah, this is this is nuts. I remember you telling me this story and I'm like, this, this can't be true. <laughs> oh my God. I know, it's extraordinary. The day that I was due to sign two contracts, one as producer, one as director, and my agent was coming in that day to ratify these contracts. And um, I got into the office, fully expecting him to turn up and the person sitting opposite me said, sorry, guy, Rod is dead. Wow. What? Turned out that he'd been murdered by his ex-boyfriend and there was multiple stab wounds. He's now in jail. But um, So I went into this huge project with no representation. Wow. And consequently, when the shit hit the fan a few weeks later, I was ill-advised and I walked away from the project and didn't have protection when the legal stuff. Yeah. Lessons learned. Yeah, lessons learned. But I walked away from a very big payday and things got a bit dark for about four or five years. Yeah, I remember. And I thought I would never crack the glass ceiling. Yeah. But then in 2009, another magical moment yes. was Morecambe. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful show, by the way. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful. It was, a, you know, one of my best mates did this incredible impersonation of Eric. We were performing in 1997 in, at Steve Martin's Wasp. I played his dad. And he just bore this incredible resemblance to young Eric Morcom. I said, in 10 years' time, we're going to do a one-man show about Eric. Well, it was 13 years when we finally did it. We did it at Edinburgh. It hit. I partnered up with a West End producer. We took it into the West End. We hit and we won the Olivia. That's right. Yeah. And was nominated for another one. So sometimes those great things just happen, but you've got to think them and they can manifest. Mm. Can I just say something? Just for our very few American listeners, Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise, what would you say their comparison is to American entertainers? Abbott and Costello? Yeah. Yeah. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Right. They were a comic duo and they broke all television records yeah. with their Christmas specials. Yes. And when they finally went on the Ed Sullivan show, the announcer said, and here they are, folks, all the way from Great Britain, Mari, Camby and Wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Let's just say it didn't go down well in New York. No. <laughs> no. Just to diverge, because you mentioned those shows, they were done by the BBC, and the BBC are known to be back then very stingy. Doctor Who had a budget of £50 of the visual effects, but when it came to light entertainment, which they were, mm. huge budgets. So you had these wonderful shows, incredible shows, and a real legendary pair. Big stars. Andre Preview. Yeah. <laughs> Previn, Preview. Yeah, they were legendary. And we did a one-man show with a ventriloquist playing his comic partner. Nice. Which a lot of people were worried about, but yeah. actually it was very moving and... Um, and Bob did an absolutely phenomenal job mm. playing Eric, and it was a pleasure to direct it. And it's lovely to see such a small piece go to the highest level. Yeah. That wasn't a piece which we could take to Broadway because no one in America knows Eric Morecambe. Right. You know, right. Great performance though it is, but you couldn't possibly do that. The shark is broken on the other hand. Right, right. So, I was going to say, segueing in, but I'll just let James get a few Well, words. I was going to say, you've just come back from Australia and New Zealand yeah. directing the amazing Elephant Man, right? Have I got that right? The marvellous Elephant Man. <laughs> the mar- Jesus Christ. <laughs> and just Australia. Let's start again. Start again. You've just come back from Australia and New Zealand from directing the... No, the- no, try again. <laughs> Why don't you tell it? Oh, my God. James. Australia only. Try again. It's the beans. <laughs> You've just come back from Australia. Yeah, but didn't you do it before in New Zealand? No, it did Adelaide. Oh, okay. that's, that's, that's Australia. One I'm terribly sorry, possums. We're having a little break here. Mr. Masterson is... I, a... I knew his charger was going to go. I knew it. What's he doing? He's charging his phone. Oh, right. Whilst we wait for Guy to uh, sort out his technical... I can't hear you. Oh. <laughs> I can hear it's probably It's best because I'm doing a terrible... Dane uh, Barry Humphreys impersonation. He just passed away. Another legend, Dane Medmer-Everidge and Sir... Uh, Les Patterson. Les Patterson. That's right. Anyway. Well, I think we've got to talk about a shark is broken well, because there's some well, questions we will. there. We will. I mean, everybody's on the edge of their seat. Do you know how many people on Facebook just... There we go. The charging sound. Are you you here? Hello. Are you with us? Are you with us? Hello, guy. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> that was a very good Indian impersonation, Martin. Thank you, Thank you very much. Nobody would have believed it. <laughs> I was walking down the street in Bangalore in India. Yes. And I could have sworn these two people walking behind me were from Swansea. And I turned around, there were the two women in saris going, well, I don't know, but it was the wonderful it was. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so with the meat and bones we're now getting into it which is all that has led to this superb show the shark is broken and if i can just say one thing about it because i'm not an intellectual like james and basically when i see a show excuse me <laughs> excuse me when I, when I see a show... Did you mention my brother's name in the same sentence as intellectual? <laughs> yeah, that something doesn't compute. <laughs> when I saw that show, I think it's one of the best sets I've ever seen in a stage show. And when I was at school, we did A-level drama and we went to the National Theatre and we saw Alan Akebourne's Way Upstream. We saw all these huge sets. Yeah. Serrano de Berdiac, if that's how you say it, probably not. But nope. And they had this huge windmill set. It was amazing. But Guy... That set, what that did to me, it took me to the film and it made me ready for the beautiful show that you put on. Now, how much of that did you... And now I know you had a set designer and, and all the craftspeople, but yeah. what role was that for you as the director? I have to be really honest with you. I don't think in terms of the set, right? 
I think in terms of what the story is and how that story is going to connect. Okay. And the environment in which that story is going to play is really the area of the designers and like you, I think visually. So once I know what it's going to be, yeah. and sometimes I have ideas, obviously, sometimes with my smaller shows, I will say, oh, this needs this and this needs that, but I'm not a designer. So I can create the vision in my head and I can direct within it. So once Duncan, the designer, yes. who also played Shida in the first iteration of it, mm-hmm. told me what he wanted, and this is in the initial iteration in Edinburgh, yes. it was just the central core of the orca of Jaws. Yes. And so the whole play was situated in that little thing. So my job as director was, how do you make a 70-minute show work in a single set against a black background? Mm. And can it work? Can it be interesting? So my job as director is to make it interesting. Sure. Obviously, it did work in 75 minutes, and it worked enough for a big producer to come along and say, okay, now you've done the fringe version, we believe it can work on a bigger stage. So what do you want for the bigger stage? And I would go over to Duncan. And then Duncan went, well, actually, I want the whole orca on the stage. Mm. And I'm going as a director, yes, I can put different scenes in different places on the boat. I can use the roof. I can use this, that, and the other. Mm. That's great. But then Duncan said, and we'd like a video backdrop where we can do different things with the weather. Yeah. And of course, the weather played such a huge part of the filming. Totally. When the weather was bad, they had to stop filming, all that kind of stuff. And when the weather was really good, there were yachts on the horizon passing over the chute. Everything got delayed. So the weather played a huge part. Squalls in the distance, Mm. seas rising, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we hired this incredible video designer who literally took my and Ian's, the writer, his concept of what was happening in the scene what time of day it was she took all those ideas and created the backdrops yeah for example we could create a storm or a squall coming in in the distance the audience could see it coming yeah you could hear the lightning yes uh, you know it really brought a real life to it yes and then it brought another thing little did we know and little did the sound designer know that he was going to end up doing a full soundscape, a full realistic soundscape, Uh with birds and aeroplanes and Mm. the shark being repaired in the distance and launches. You know, normal theatre soundscapes aren't anywhere near that. This was the biggest soundscape he'd ever created. Mm. 3,500 individual elements in the soundscape. Wow. Wow. Uh, because it had to be real yeah, and yet theatrical. Yes, yes, and you did it. So my job as director was to make sure that all these elements played together, not one overrode the other. They all played together in harmony. And so the audience were never questioning anything that might override anything. My job was to make sure that the play worked and that we got involved with the three actors in the play. And that is all the director's job is, mm. apart from, of course, to balance all these elements. Yes, And it's fun when you're working with super artists like that, where money is effectively no object I'm gonna, amazing it's obviously an object but basically when you work for sonia friedman she asks you what you need and as long as it's realistic it's provided that's amazing and so martin and i were very lucky to come to the opening night of london brilliant um which was fantastic and then Monty and i went to see the one in toronto last october yes and now we have broadway 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 baby <laughs> Give my regards to Broadway. And it's opening on... Yeah, it's opening on my 62nd birthday. 62? I thought you were much older. You're 60, aren't you, James? He's going to be 60 soon. (laughs) No, mate. (laughs) Um, It's a very special 
thing because dad, as you know, was a Brooklyn boy and he went to Juilliard School of Music and then played 10 years with the New York Philharmonic in Carnegie Hall, wow. which is just up the road from where we're playing. So for me, it feels like a full circle. Yeah. I have done several trips to New York. I've never properly worked there as an actor. I've always dreamed of, you look at those big Broadway theatres, God, I wonder if ever, any time, I'll play on one of those stages. Not will I ever see my name in lights. I'm not even sure my name will be in lights. There probably will be a light box up there with my name on it popping up, and I'll definitely take <laughs> yeah. a picture of it. On the poster, isn't it? It'll yeah. be on the posters, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's the stuff of dreams, and for me it feels like full circle, and I often think about Dad. Mm -hmm. Just like when I was going to do my London debut at the Gilgood Theatre, that was the theatre that Uncle Richard made his debut in. Right. Mm. That was the one I walked away from back in 2004, but such is life. And interesting, you mentioned music because of your father's amazing musical talents, and that's mm. gone through your family. And you use that music when you were learning your lines and using that mythology. Well, I think all artists benefit from being musical. And I think we are musical in our family, even if we've never really included it professionally. You know, I, I'm not a player. But I got to quite a high standard on the piano, and James taught himself how to play the piano, yeah. which I have to say publicly I was very impressed by. Oh, thank you very much. Mm. Could I have that in writing, please? <laughs> he would generally learn the things I knew, but he'd play them from memory, self-taught, which was actually even more impressive, though I never praised him ever. Far be it from me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Better late than never, bro. But he could also play Barry Norman's film 23 or whatever it was. Dun, no, I dun, couldn't. Dun, I, couldn't uh, play that. Dun, I never dun. knew how to play that. <laughs> Didn't you? No, it was Hill Street Blues. Oh. Oh, you played Hill Street Blues. I thought that was film 23. So, uh, you know, obviously you weren't playing it well enough. <laughs> But I never watched Hill Street Blues, so uh, I never saw it. No, I never did either. I never did either. I just no. like music. Well, that's incredible that you taught yourself that. Yeah. You know. yeah. He's not daft. No, he's not. No, and actually, now, talking about that guy, that segues into a little thought I've been toying with in the back of my cerebral cortex, because you are known for doing the Guy Masterson method. Oh. Where you parlay your skills and your experiences. What can you do with our James? <laughs> 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 it's a hopeless cause. Well, I've tried everything on him and it hasn't worked so far. Look, I, I came across this incredible self-help book when I was in L.A. In fact, I succumbed to one of those great infomercials. Uh, and it was during the Olympic Games in 1988, actually. Right. I kept seeing these Samsung adverts, the advert that I went up for. And, of course, there was the Welsh boy saying his Welsh lines, the one they wouldn't even let me in to do. And on the TV came this infomercial about Think and Grow Rich, ah. which was one of the great self-help books. And it was written in the 20s, I think. Napoleon Hill. That's right. Napoleon Hill. And I watched this thing and it was one of those moments that changed my world. 18 cassettes and a book. Wow. And if you apply all the tenets written down in this book, you too will be rich. And so I did. And I can safely say that it did set me on track to be a self-actualizing sort of person, to not let barriers get in my way, mm. to figure out how to eliminate the barriers mm. in a positive way, not to be negative, and to overcome and to have faith and to back that with persistence and have a goal. And I've always been that way since then in the arts, which a lot of people ask, how did you do it in the arts? And I say, well, the only thing I can say is that I had faith in 
my ability. Mm. And that faith had been reinforced by my peers in the early acting classes and then was reinforced by the reviews I got for the various shows I did and then reinforced by the results from the shows I directed and reinforced by the artists that I picked to work with me and then reinforced by the show's successes. You know, and ultimately you build up a confidence level. Mm. And I truly believe that confidence is the key to life mm. but true confidence i'm not talking about saying i am confident yeah bullshit you can say it as much as you like if you don't feel it you're not confident confidence is to me the ability to think you can do something and then figure out how to do it mm. and then do it nothing has to be a problem and you don't have to be a bastard you can just be a good human being mm. and help as many people because there'll be people who help you back mm. And be generous of spirit and just believe in your contribution to the world, if you can. Yeah. You know, and eventually magic does happen. Yeah, it's interesting because there's this thing now I read online where people are like, oh, you know, Jeff Bezos, oh, well, his mum and dad had a diamond mine. And it's kind of like this sort of shooting down of successes. Now, I use him as an example, but there's many people like yourself who've come from basically nothing, really, and have done it themselves. And I still believe in that. And I think, you know, with America, with all its troubles and everything, there is still that belief that you can make things happen. You've done it in Britain, and I think you're speaking about that. The American dream, yeah. Well, there really is. Unfortunately, America... America is not anywhere near as free as it was 30, 40 years ago. No. It's also so money-oriented now and very elitist in the sense that if you don't have money, you don't stand much of a chance. But you can still do it. It is still the place where if you actualize, you can realize your dreams. Britain has always been harder in that respect because of the thing you alluded to, the tall poppy syndrome. But I just think that if you believe in something enough and you want it yep. and you don't take no for an answer, not in a rude way, but you just keep circumventing the problem mm. until you get past it, totally. you will get to where you need to go. And our brother Joseph, for all his other sins, was the person that actually put me on that road because I said to him in a moment of real down, I said, all I want is to, to just act. That's all I want to do. <laughs> I just want to act and earn enough money to survive. I don't care how much. I just want enough to feed myself. And he goes, you don't want it enough. <laughs> what? I said, I'm not asking for much. Just enough to pay for chips every night. That's all I want. Says, you don't want it enough. I don't understand you. I don't understand. I said, just tell me what you're saying. So he said, in other words, if you want it so much that you can't help doing it, you will do it anyway, regardless of what the return is going to be. Mm. And you will become good at it unless the world is telling you that you're not good at yeah. it, at which point you need to wake up, smell the freaking roses, get the hell out of town. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people out there who want to be actors and can't do it. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's a chicken and an egg situation when you act and you don't get the return you want or the comments you want or the reviews you want. At what point do you say, mm, maybe the universe is telling me I shouldn't do it? Exactly. You can't just keep blindly going for it yep. just because it's your dream. Yeah. And another thing about the art form is that you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm an artist. Yeah. You know, firstly, and this is very contentious, and I'll probably get a whole bunch of actors on here going, oh. I don't believe actors are artists. Oh. I don't believe the work I do as an actor is an art form. I believe it is an interpretive form. And I believe the more I keep my ego out of my work, the better it can be. And the moment I call it an art form, I'm going to hang on to the things I create because I've created it. Mm. Bollocks. You've interpreted it. Someone else gave the idea. The words of the playwright are the idea. You've interpreted them and you've done it to the best of your ability. And the overall picture that is created by your work in conjunction with other people's work could be classed as an art form overall. That doesn't make you an artist. No. So get the ego out of art. That's all I say. Mm. Get it out. Just do it. Well, those AI prompters certainly aren't artists, even though they call themselves. 
them. <clears throat> Just thought I'd get in there. One more question I have, if you don't mind, is with the wonderful show the shark is broken, have you heard from the yeah. governor himself, Mr. Steven Spielberg? <laughs> the production has heard from the governor himself because the production's producer is a friend of Mr. Spielberg ah, okay. and got clearance for us to use uh, the various uh, references we needed to use. Nice. And um, let's just say Mr. Spielberg has read the script and Mr. Spielberg enjoyed it very much and gave his blessing to it. A lot of people thought we used Stephen's voice in the West End, and I am not going to disavow them of that idea. Right. And um, what else can I tell you about Mr. Spielberg? He loved Robert Shaw. Yeah. And Ian met him. I've known Ian for 26 years now, I think. Yeah. 26 years. Yeah, and um, it was alluded to in an interview that we'd discussed doing something about his dad, and we had, and he asked me about the play I directed about Uncle Richard. And coming full circle on that question, Uncle Richard got under my skin because we became close and he was super famous. And I put a lot of pressure on myself when I became an actor, thinking, well, maybe I'm a chip off the old block. Right. Maybe the American way is right. I need to push that forward. And nepotism rules in Hollywood. But I never did use it because I never believed I was good enough to use it mm. until I'd done something off my own back where I could actually go, OK, well, I don't have a problem. People knowing that now because I can stand up and say I am my own man. Sure. Right. I've done my own stuff. I've won my own awards. Sure. Uncle Richard happened to inspire me. Yeah. He inspired me in the right way. Yeah. He got me interested in literature yeah. and storytelling and all of that. And so I didn't model myself after him after I came to that realisation that I was just killing myself trying to be the next Richard Burton and letting myself down and doing all that. So once I'd said goodbye to that. So when I met Ian, he looked like his father as a young man. Yeah. And every time he walked into an interview room, people were expecting his father. That's far worse than I had. I don't look like Richard Burton and I don't sound like him. I can if I put a bucket over my head. Yeah. So people aren't expecting it. But he had that from the beginning and he wanted to be known as his own man. So he didn't go that route, didn't use it, uh, didn't change his name, though. No. He retained it as Ian Shaw. Interesting. Uh, we had worked on a show together in 2006 uh, where he'd saved me. I needed a really good actor to come in very, very last minute and do this gig. And he did it and he was brilliant. And I knew he was a brilliant actor. So finally, he called me in 2017 and said, Guy, I'm tired of being poor. What do you think of this idea? And the implication is that I'm tired of being poor, this is going to make money, yeah. um, is not the implication I mean, but it was the lead line. Yeah. I'm tired of being poor. What do you think of this? Three men in a boat. One of them is my father. I'm going to play my father. I want you to direct it. I didn't have to think about a thing. Right. It was like someone put a piece of gold in my hand and said, I want you to do it. I want you to be involved. I want you to present it in Edinburgh and do your thing. And we'll get West End producers interested and hopefully it will work. Yeah. And um, Amazing. And it did. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's a beautiful thing. And the fact that it's going to Broadway is an even more beautiful thing because it shows that you can have an idea. And some people are going to say, oh, he was Robert Shaw's son. Of course he was going to exploit it and do something about Jaws and blah, 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 blah. But this is not that. Mm. This is not an exploitation. This is an exploration. Mm. It goes deeper than anything that's ever been said about Jaws. Totally. It is about the three characters in Jaws. No one's ever thought about this kind of investigation into what it was. Yeah. And frankly, it was a miracle the film ever got finished. But it did. And we are blessed with it. Yeah. And here we are blessed with the behind-the-scenes story. Wish I were bloody invested in it. Yeah. Blimey. <laughs> Well, you can. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> so, so the question is, 
Will it come to LA on a tour, perhaps? Well, there is talk of a tour. Ian can't be in two places at once. No. And that's the problem. I'm very glad to say, though, that the play works even without Ian. Wow. Thankfully, during our run in London, we had other actors who had to cover for Ian when he got sick. Well, when anybody got sick with COVID. Mm. And we were the only show in London that didn't close because of COVID. Wow. We stayed open. And thankfully, what that proved is that the play works anyway, right. which is great. So for any Jaws fan out there, yes, okay, if Ian isn't in it, you may not see Ian and all that meta magic, whatever you want to call it, yeah. but you'll see a great play about your favourite film. Yeah. And it works anyway. Ian's a bonus, and a bloody big bonus, but he can't be in two places at the same time. So if it comes to LA, I would back Ian to do LA, mm -hmm. but I don't think he can do Portland, Oregon and no, of course not. places like that. But you never know. That'd be brilliant. You never know. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing you all in New York. You're coming to opening. Yes, I am. James is very kindly taking me and Sal there as well. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> very good. Wait, how come I don't know about this? I better add another two tickets to my list, right? Yeah. We're driving across America in a Chevrolet. Really? Are you actually coming to the opening night, Mark? Oh, that would be wonderful. I've always been a bit scared of New York ever since I saw Death Wish, and I've never recovered from that film. <laughs> That's the problem, but I would love to. It's like people who've never recovered from Jaws, right? <laughs> Martin, I'm amazed that you didn't bring up the car. I did subtly mention it. I said I was going to drive across America to see the show. Oh, I didn't think you were referring to a particular vehicle. And it's the Chevrolet, isn't it? It was a Chevy Shovet. The Chevy Chevette. Well, you see, now it was. And now I have apologised to you about that ages ago. I'm not sure what it was after you finished with it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, let's put it this now way. Now it's trash. Now it's garbage. <laughs> it was enough of a state that somebody left a note on it when we went shopping, said, cool car, because it didn't have a back windscreen. That's right. Yeah. That was a design fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hatchback was missing yeah. off it it was a cabriolet it was the first time i learned about gaffer tape that's right and bin bags it was back in the days of la when that was cool now of course people would look from their range rover hybrids and go oh my god look at those guys <laughs> you see to me that was a moment of america showing itself it's like that whole trip was so bizarre there was me basically forgetting i was in america and doing a left turn right into oncoming traffic well, no, a truck behind us. It wasn't oncoming. That's right. It, that's right. Yes, it was, it behind, was us. behind us. And she actually... You, you crossed in front of the truck and he T-boned you. Well, she was actually in the wrong lane anyway. Yeah, she was in the turning lane going to go straight. Yeah. And she, we were in yes. the straight lane going to turn. Turn, yes, you see. And the thing is, it was such force that my seat was shoved and my head hit James's head and I knocked him out. And I knocked myself out for a few seconds and then we heard this... Woo, woo, and I remember the ambulances coming and then they're putting them in and they were trying to put the drip. I am getting cold sweats at this moment. <laughs> Thinking about the insurance claim. And who is the owner of this car? <laughs> he doesn't know I've got the car, so we can't tell him. What? <laughs> oh, fun times. Oh, my God. So now I've got a full picture. Do You sort of did that crack and you knocked him out yes and he knocked himself out yes and then i kind I of just remember martin headbutting me and going what the hell did you just do no i didn't actually i was actually scared you weren't with us anymore because i wouldn't have anybody to take the piss out of anymore so i was concerned that you'd passed you know because you were there like this oh my god <laughs> martin's making a dead face 
yeah. on a slant. <laughs> and then and then I got a call from Johnny saying, we've got a problem. <laughs> so what happened? And he couldn't explain because he was the only one insured to drive the car. I right. said, well, where are you? He said, well, I'm not with them. What? Aren't you supposed to be driving? Y- yeah. Well, who is driving? Oh, well. Um... <laughs> he was like, what? And I'm sitting here. Wait a sec, how many cars were involved? The police come, and this is that and the other? Oh, my Lord. I could see my life flashing before my eyes. So how did that all work? Because all I remember then was in hospital, they trying to put a drip in me, and I was like, oh, oh, oh. Well, that was in the ambulance. That was in the ambulance, yeah, right. you were freaking out. Well, I wasn't freaking out. I was just making a whinging noise. You know, we, d- we shouldn't mention names on this podcast because um, probably they've been looking for us since 1987. Yeah. <laughs> Now they can put names to the, the moment and the insurance company can go after us. I think there's a statute of limitations on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, it was Martin and James. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all him. And I remember then we were stood in Celia's house and that police officer was there and he goes, are you going back to the United Kingdom? We were like, yes, we are. <laughs> and I also remember that Johnny had given Celia a massive bag of weed from his back garden that he had cultivated. Oh, it gets worse! <laughs> and, it was, and it was stashed away in, no. in the cupboard. And the cop was right there and Celia's like, well, yes, they are going home. We've got to write this movie. <laughs> oh, my oh Lord. My it, it gets worse. We've got to write that story. Yes. <laughs> I love doing this with James. I think it's brilliant. I love doing this. Hey? I've written a screenplay. You did? I did. I wrote the screenplay and it's being made. Yeah, I know you wrote a screenplay. I oh, yes. You conveniently cut me out of it. Oh, yeah, you see there's silence because he's... Yeah, but you were so young and insignificant, James. You know, you, we'll have you in there, but as an extra. <laughs> oh, fuck perfect, you. Perfect you can go, what about me, you pog? <laughs> in nappies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, what, 12 or 13? No, it was 1982. How old were you? 1982? 1981. Yeah, I was born in 69, guy. You do the math. 1981. You were 11. Thank you. I was 11. Oh, you were just 12. His voice hadn't broken, that's for sure. (laughs) I don't like either of you right now. I think that would be an amazing film and certainly a great British film. Maybe um, handmade films could make it or something like that. It's being made, Martin. We're in pre-production at the moment. You are? Yes. Shut up. Yes. But the James Jim fucking said a word. Because he hasn't told me. What? I'm learning this at the same time as you. You are in pre-production of your script. No, you told me that people were interested. You didn't say you were in pre-production. Yeah, no, we've got the producer involved in everything. I'm executive producer. And this is how I find out? You tell me? On air? Oh, I reserved it for your podcast. It's the other side of Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. Well, thank you, Guy. That's very generous of you to unload that information. Yeah, and I will get as many of my friends and relatives on or into that movie as I possibly can. And if it needs storyboarding, I will put your name forward. And if it needs an extra, I'll put James's name forward. <laughs> I know. I always say, look at that. I'm still in the fucking trench. I'm still in the fucking trench because you're going to put my name forward. Great. But God, Thanks, you're exec- mate. You're an executive wow. producer. You can just hire him. Wow. Oh, no, no, no. I can't, apparently. Yeah, I don't know. 
Well, of course you can. You have to think positively and don't say no for an answer. Thanks, James. But I know things are being done to my script at the moment. <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't take no for an answer. No, I think that's wonderful. I think that's really wonderful, Guy. Yeah. Did you read the screenplay, Martin? Uh, <clears throat> I haven't yet. I must immediately get to Mind it. Mind you, I don't know which version to give him, Guy, because uh, there's about 50 million different versions. No, don't read that one. Read the new updated version from the producers, which wow. should come soon. Which is oh, you. I'm going to get the updated version from myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's been rewritten, basically, by somebody else. Right. Such is the nature. And I've got to approve it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Look at this. This is insane. We've really had a sniff, haven't we? Well, bro... Thank you very much for your time. No, it's been brilliant, Guy. I'm really, really chuffed for you. And there are so many more things I would love to have talked about, but... Come um, on, then. Come on, then. No, we'll save it for another time. <sighs> always missing the opportunity, well, this one. We can always go again. I'm just so stoked that we've got you on this. Thanks, bro. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, oh thank girl, you. It's wonderful. Thanks, little, little bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love fest. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to it and seeing you. All right, love you. Cheers. Cheers, bro. Thank Bye. you, guy. Thanks, guy. Ciao, ciao. Is he gone, James? Yeah. Finally. Ooh, he don't half go on, doesn't he? I know. Oh, Always I know. about himself. I know. <laughs> guy, 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 guy. No, it was great. It was a really good interview, and I'm really grateful that he uh, came on and talked to us. Yeah, no, some really good information there and I think really inspiring yeah, how yeah. you find a passion mm -hmm. and you just carry that through and take it to unprecedented levels. Yeah. You know, a Broadway show and looks like making a movie, of which yeah. both of us have got huge producing roles in. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even know about it. It's no, nor did I. Bastard. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. I'm very proud of him. And yeah. He's always been tenacious and passionate. Yeah, uh, and it's fantastic. So Brilliant. Kudos to my brother. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's been a lovely session. Yeah, thanks for the breakfast. Thank you. Sorry I burnt the toast. Yeah, bacon was a bit tragic too, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Good chatting with you, mate. Until next time. Until next time. Cheers. Bye. Before we go, we bring you our... Fact check! Fact check! Fact check! Fact check segment. Here, with the benefit of hindsight and editing, we can own up to our mistakes. <laughs> Dear Brother Guy, the song you so beautifully sang and attributed to Noel Coward was actually called You're Getting to Be a Habit with Me. Music by Harry Warren and lyrics by Al Dubin in 1932. A fun fact, James, it was sung by B.B. Daniels in the 1933 Warner Brothers musical 42nd Street. Well, there you are. And James, the play that Guy co-directed in Adelaide was The Marvellous Elephant Man. Yes, I couldn't get the words out because of my brain fog. Is it clear? It's very foggy in there. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the other play I wanted to touch on that my brother had done, a very physical play called American Poodle, was a fantastic and very funny play. Yeah, we saw that in St Albans, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Martin, it's not Jeff Bezos' family who has the diamond mine, it's Elon Musk's. Ah, thank you. Also, I don't think you meant Serrano de Bergerac. You meant Don Quixote. Exactly. It was very clear. <laughs> so that's that. Right, thanks, mate. Lovely. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.